Take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15. Excuse me, Mark chapter 14. <clears throat> go to Mark 15, turn left. Uh, go back one, and you'll be where I'm going to be. We talked about this passage a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to look at it a little more in depth this morning. One of the things I'm more assured of as I get older and as the days go along is that people who are not followers of Jesus Christ look at those who are followers of Jesus Christ with a certain misunderstanding or a hard time figuring out those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And by the way, when I say a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't mean an admirer of Jesus Christ. There's a big difference between admiring Jesus and following Jesus. Uh, there are a lot of people who choose to call themselves Christians that I believe are, are admiring Christ and his teachings and his, who he's, what he stands for from a distance. A follower of Jesus Christ comes to him and gives themselves to him. And so those who are followers of Jesus Christ are perceived as odd because the lifestyle of a follower of Jesus Christ is so antithetical to those who are not followers. We live in an age, a day, and it's always been like this, but it seems to be increasing and there seems to be more of a demand to accept certain things. Um, but those who are not followers of Jesus Christ are living for themselves in the day. And why would you not? I mean, if you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe in God, if you believe that this life is all there is, why not live a self-centered existence? Why not enjoy, by your definition of enjoy, everything that the day holds? Why not consume life and let it just envelop you? And so, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it's easy to understand why you would live to gratify your sexuality. It'd be easy to, to, to understand why you would live to gratify your desires for wealth or fame or popularity or a name because it brings you a certain satisfaction in this life and this life is all you're living for. But we as followers of Jesus Christ we're living for something different. In other words, we, we, when you come to follow Jesus, there is an aspect of saying he is the one leading. He is the one who is the Lord of our life. Is, we use it in Christian terms. He's the one in charge. Therefore, we're now not living for ourselves anymore. We're living for a different calling. We're living for the calling of following, following Jesus. The staff and I are reading a book by an author named Andrew Wilson. He's British. It's called Spirit and Sacrament. And he has a chapter, I was already planning on preaching on participating with God, participating with one another in worship. We've been looking at how we, we prepare our lives and then we participate with what God is doing. One of the ways we participate in a regular basis is in worship. But why? 
why do we worship together is, I think, an important question other than I signed up for this deal and this is what I'm required to go to a weekly meeting of the group um, because that's, that's part of that. I pay my dues. I go to the meetings. I do what I'm supposed to. But no, no, no. We're called to be worshipers of God. Why is that as followers of Jesus Christ? And Andrew Wilson, in his book, Spirit and Sacrament, he talks about this aspect of worship. Now, he is talking specifically about spiritual gifts, which we've been talking about on Wednesday night when we're doing Practicing the Power, which we're going to resume this Wednesday. Uh, Chris is going to teach on healing. I want to encourage you to come at 630 uh, is when the meeting starts. If you sign up for dinner, it's earlier. You know the drill. But if you'd like to come and hear a teaching on healing, I encourage you to be here this Wednesday night. But he's talking about gifts, and he, he wants us to recognize, Andrew Wilson does, that this, this fundamental truth that everything we have is a gift from God. Everything. All of God's gifts are given to us. For instance, <clears throat> life is a gift from God. I mean, it's a gift from, we assume this is just the nature of things, but if you think about it, creation and the creation story is a gift from God. Existence in itself is a gift from God, and everything that God gives us is good. Let me say it again. Everything we have is a gift from God, and everything that God gives is good. Would you... Would you agree with my premise? If you don't agree with the premise, then you're not going to agree with the rest of what's going to take place this morning. God gives gifts, and he gives good gifts. Now, God gives good gifts to be used as he instructs. So in the giving of the gifts, he says, here's the way to use them. I'm giving this to you. It's a great gift. But use it in this way. Satan gives you nothing. He takes God's good gifts and tries to pervert them in order to get attention and worship drawn to himself. So in the garden, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, maybe God gave you this, but did God really say? And this gift isn't really that good because he's told you you can't do this with it. So he perverts the knowledge of the good gift with some other thing. Now, I could... I could go into a long teaching on this this morning, that we live in an age where we see God's gifts, whatever they are, perverted. Now, we think of perversion as sexuality, but we could go there, but that's not the only limit. Worship can be perverted. Food can be perverted. Hello? Some of us might need to repent before we leave here this morning. Uh, Anything God gives can be perverted. Not only that, But if we're not careful, we'll take the good that God gives us and rather worshiping the giver, we start to worship the gift. It's it's a fundamental nature of man. We either pervert or we worship the thing. One is called idolatry and one is called perversion. And Satan, he doesn't care which direction we go as long as we don't worship God in his holiness. Life. Marriage and the family, creation, the law, the incarnation of Jesus, the ultimate gift of God. The Holy Spirit, the church, the gifts of the Spirit, they're all gifts from God. Christian theology is a theology of gifts. 
and of the giver of the gifts. Now, the question always is how do we enjoy God's gifts without worshiping them? Some to choose to ignore the gifts, for instance, the gifts of the Spirit. Others choose to pervert various gifts. In his book, uh, Wilson says, look, let's acknowledge that these gifts are good. And I want to say this about the church. Too often, we take the good gifts of God and don't acknowledge that they're good. So, for instance, rather than saying sexuality and sex is good, too often in the church, we, because we're afraid of the perversion of God's good gifts, we fall in the ditch on the other side and we don't say the gift is good. G.K. Chesterton, a British author of years ago, used to say, you know, people always argue about why are there bad things in the world. If, if God is good and God is sovereign, why are there bad things in the world? Chesterton argued this. The question is not why there are bad things in the world, but if there isn't a God, why is there anything good? He would argue from the opposite end to say goodness in life proves that there is a God. So, for instance, he could have made us have to eat food to survive, but God made food to taste good. He made sex good. We could have procreated in a number of different ways, but God chose this way, and that there is pleasure involved in sex. In other words, goodness in the gifts is proof of the goodness of God and that there is a God. So, acknowledge that his gifts are good and recognize that he is the one giving them. He's the one giving them. He has a plan. This is where we too often in our world get sideways, is we say there is this thing, but it's my plan for this thing that brings me pleasure, therefore I'm going to follow my plan. And then respond that we are receiving these gifts. Respond that we're going to receive these gifts. How do we do that? Here's how. Thanksgiving. Thank God for the gift. We give thanks and we enjoy them. Worship, which we're going to talk about today. We declare that the one who gives the gifts is worthy. By the way, that's where the term worship worship comes from. Declaring that God is, is worthy. Our love for him compels us to live for him. Worship, though, we're talking about a corporate aspect of worship a little bit this morning. Worship is an everyday aspect of everything that we do all the time. We should be worshiping fools. We should take these gifts that God has given and say, thank you, God, for the gift. I'm going to worship you, God, for the giving of this gift. Now I want to take this gift and I want to steward it properly. I want to, I want to, I want to take this gift and, and use it like you've told me to use it resources, my sexuality, food, life, breath, words, family. All of these are gifts from you. Now, God, help me to steward them and everything you've given me in a, in a way that honors you. And then pursue these good gifts of God. You know, too often, that, that's why the scripture says eagerly desire spiritual gifts. It's not saying worship the gift. It's say, look, in your thanksgiving, and Paul sets this up pretty heavily in Corinthians before he ever gets there. He's talking about thanksgiving and worship and stewardship before he ever gets to pursuit. You don't just pursue something to be pursuing something. If you do, 
you're out of whack. But in the context of this whole discussion, if we involve thanksgiving and worship and stewardship and pursuit all together, it, is, it works. It works because it, it's God's plan. Tom the other night talked about um, um, us together going after God, that we both, um, I forgot the terms you used, Tom, I thought I wrote them down. I'm sorry, where's Tom? What are the two words? Where's Tom? Tom, what are the words? No, Tom, I'm asking you. I don't have time for this. <laughs> Insist and yield. Thanks, Tom, <laughs> for, for doing it joyfully. Uh, yield is really thanksgiving and worship. We're yielding to God. We're saying, thank you, God, for this gift. I worship you for this gift. And at the same time, in stewardship and pursuit, we're insisting. Different ways of looking at this from how God has given them to us. This morning, in the time we have, I, I want to talk about worship. The one aspect, the second one, how we worship together. And I want to go back to Mark 14, to this passage of, that we looked at briefly a couple of weeks ago. And it says in Mark 14, 1, it says, Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. If you'll remember, this is two days, as it says, two days before the Passover. They are going to kill Jesus during the feast, by the way. But Jesus is retreated to the home of Simon the leper. And though we don't know who Simon is, uh, we have this account of what takes place in his house at a dinner. Now, there's some sister passages to this. There's one in John 12, 1 through 8, which I believe is telling the same story from John's perspective. And in that story, he identifies Mary as the one who, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He identifies Mary as the one who is engaged in this. Mark doesn't name the woman that we're going to see. But what she does serves to me as, as a model for how we worship. Now, please, as we worship, I wanted you to keep the premise that I talked to you about earlier in mind, that God is a giver of gifts, all his gifts are good, and we acknowledge them through thanksgiving, worship, stewardship, and pursuit. But let's talk about the aspect of how we participate in worship together. Here's the first point. Worship involves sacrifice. Worship involves sacrifice. It says, I'm going to just walk us through this passage in Mark. Mark chapter 14, verse 3, and though Mark doesn't name the woman as Mary, I'm going to end up saying Mary over and over again because I think it is Mary who's, who's engaged here. It says, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Now, when we say an expensive, expensive perfume and then we say pure nard, that to me doesn't sound all that appealing, I have to admit. But this was not some Walmart $25 perfume that Mary pulls out of her closet and brings to Jesus. If you study the background of this, it's like an ounce of this perfume 
It, it comes from India. Now, listen, we're getting perfume from India in Palestine. It, it didn't just fly there. I mean, it, it, in this day and age, it is very expensive. We're talking like one ounce would have, in today's dollars, cost somewhere between fifteen and $30,000 by our standards. So when we talk about this gift that she's about to give, it is not. And can you imagine Mary going to her closet? Let's say she had a closet. I don't know. She goes to her closet and says, I'm going to anoint Jesus today with some perfume. Do I take the $20,000 or the $15? You know, if I get, it's going to seem the same purpose. If I give the $15, it's not that big a deal. What, what, what's it going to matter? And by the way, this came in a sealed kind of jar. So when it says she breaks the jar in a minute, when you broke it, it's used. It's done. It's over. It's not like it's got a cork in it. Dot, 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 dot. You know, when we anoint people with oil, we kind of like put one finger. Ding, ding, ding. Um, we just barely put anything on. I mean, see, once you break it, it's done. It's using the, it's using the whole thing. And it says she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. This is a total giving, a total act of worship, a total sacrifice. It, it, this kind of anointing was used in kingly or very important occasions. We we too often want to offer a gift of worship that is nominal. It's our nature. I'm going to do it, but let me just give you an example. I, I don't really care how much you give to the church financially. I mean, I do, but I don't. But I have people at times ask me, should I give on the gross or the net? Should I give on, you know, what was taken out of my taxes? Or should I give on what the paycheck was, actually? And, you know, I, I, I want to say, you know, I don't really give a flip. I, I want you to ask God what you should give. But I think in the question, it reveals the nature of our heart. Rather than saying, is my worship costly and sacrificial, it says, what can I get by with? What is the nominal requirement to be in the club? David, uh, there was a time where David wanted to offer a sacrifice, and he wanted to build an altar, and he goes to the guy who owns the property, and he says to him, I want to buy this land, I want to build an altar, I want to make a sacrifice to God. And the guy says, hey, dude, you're the king. Just take the land. Just, I, I just want to give it to you. Take it and... Now, David obviously was not a Baptist preacher because he says, no, I insist on paying. That's supposed to be a joke, people. Um, he says, no, I insist on paying the full sacrifice. I will not take for the Lord what is yours. And this line always gets me. Or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. I will not worship with a nothing mindset. I'm going to worship sacrificially. We need, do you, do you ever come to church on Sunday and say, 
how can I sacrificially give myself to the worship this morning? Look, most of the time, I don't, I don't do that. Most of us, we see, oh, I got to go to church. I need to go to church. I want to see some people. We may even find joy in going to church and, and want to offer some stuff, but do we see it as a sacrifice? When was the last time you did something worshipful to God that actually cost you something? That was a sacrifice where I said, I have to lay down, lay down my life. This is not the mindset that we enter into. Why? Because most of us see our lives as this thing in which God has made us, and we say, I, I, I'm pretty happy with me. I like the me that I am, so I'm going to take Jesus and I'm going to add it to the me that I am, and now I'll be a better me. No, God, that is not sacrificial living in the Lord. Sacrificial living in the Lord says this, Jesus, I come to you and I give my life to you. Change me. Anywhere where who I am doesn't align with your plan, change me. We're engaged in conversations like this more and more in our society. This is who I am. I want Jesus to just be added to who I am. And now... I can still live like me, but I got Jesus on top of me, so that's, I'll be fine. This is the way I choose to worship God. But God says, look, you come to, if you're going to come to him, we come with a sacrificial mindset saying, I lay it all down before him. Change me in the way you want me to be. Second, worship is often misunderstood. It's often misunderstood. Going on in verse 4 and 5, look at the response. Now, here's what I want to say, too, as you look at this. This is not an unbeliever service. Hello? The people at the dinner are the highly committed. These are the followers of Jesus. This is not the world looking at her offering and saying something. This is the disciples. This is the highly committed who say some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. The believers turned on Mary and said, why waste this fifteen dollars to $30,000 perfume? You could have sold it and the money given to the poor. Is that a true statement? It's not a trick question. Yes, that is a true statement. They could have, they could have done it. The, other, the, the passage in John says it was Judas, the one who's already getting ready or has betrayed Jesus, sold him out, who's indignantly turning on her, rebuking her harshly. Listen. The people are growling at her because even in the context of the church, worship is often misunderstood. Worship reveals when, when, a, when a people worship, it reveals the state of our own heart. And sometimes we get uncomfortable by the revelation of the state of our own heart. Therefore, we turn on the one who's worshiping. Now, I'm not 
talking about the weirder we are, the more we're worshiping. Weird and worship are not necessarily synonymous. They can be at times, but it is not, that's not the norm that I'm talking about. You know, I've been, I've been around groups of people who felt like in order to worship, they just had to be so weird that no normal person could talk to them. And that's not what I'm talking about here this morning. I'm talking about a, uh, there's, you, could, you could walk into a group who are singing songs of praise. Maybe they're not even lifting their hands. Maybe they're not dancing. They're not doing anything weird. But if they're in their heart fully engaged in worship, if there's something wrong in your heart, it will be misunderstood. Why? Because it's a spiritual transaction that's taking place. And this is what happens to her. They rebuke her harshly. Listen, we, we, we're going to have to be at ease with being misunderstood, both in the context of the church and especially in the light and the eyes of the world, those who aren't followers. Ultimately, worship is about who? Who? Now, the reason you might say, well, that seems so obvious. You know, Jesus, you could probably fill in the blank with Jesus on almost any of these. Because the answer is always Jesus. Listen, the longer I'm in church, the more I wonder if it's about Jesus. It seems as if we design worship services around ourselves. That too often worship is designed to meet a specific need in the, in, in, and it's designed to, to, to go at people to say, I want to I want to try and attract by presenting a service where a consumer, look, I, again, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is, look, we just need to be so otherworldly that we can't, the bridge is so long that no one can come across it. What I am saying is this, worship is not about us. Worship is about him. It is ultimately about Jesus, and he says to them, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. Jesus, again, is not denigrating the poor. He's not saying, hey, forget the poor. Never does Jesus give that heart of saying, it's, don't, don't take care of the poor. He's saying, listen, the poor are going to be around, but this what she's doing, it's about worshiping me. Jesus is the object of our worship. If we ever get away from that, we have, we, we're, we're, we're goners. I mean, really, as a church, we have to be a people who participate with him in worship. William Barclay says it like this, Love does not neatly calculate the less or the more. It is not concerned to see how little it can decently give. If it gave all it had, if indeed it gave all the world, the gift would still be too little. Because it's about Him. It all has to begin and end with Him. When we come together to worship, we don't, we don't worship the music we don't worship the styles. We don't worship the freedom. We don't worship the gifts or the expression of gifts. We worship the living Christ. And everything we do has to be about worshiping, about worshiping Him.
here's my contention today. We all worship something. We all worship something, and we can usually see what we worship by what we give our time to, what we sacrifice for, where we give our attention. My contention is this. We as a people need to be worshiping Jesus. Now, here's also my contention. My contention in public worship is this. We are worshiping Jesus. There is this vertical aspect of lifting him high and exalting him, focused on him. But when we worship as a group, there's also this horizontal aspect of we are worshiping God together. So when I come to worship on Sunday morning, I don't just say, I just want to worship God however I want to worship God and the heck with the rest of the people. Now, Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, I'm worshiping God, but I'm doing it in the context of a horizontal relationship. How does that work? Well, I think the fourth point is this. When it's public and together, worship is a testimony of the gospel. It, it says to each other, to all of us, that God is being glorified. The good news of Jesus. And the gospel is, is the encompassing term of the good news of Jesus Christ and the effects that his coming brings to us. Mark 14, 8 and 9, finishing off this passage, says, this is Jesus talking, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. This is an incredible statement he gives. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. She's saying, he is saying, that what she's doing is so awesome that it testifies to the good news. And wherever the good news of me is preached, this act of worship will also be, will also be shared. Don't you at times wish you could do one thing so for Jesus, sacrificially, out of the box, with a pure heart, that it actually gets attached to the name of Jesus? I wish at times I could be less logical and more generous. I'm battling that all the time. I wish I could be less analytic and more compassionate. I wish I could be less self-centered and more Christ-centered in my life. I wish I could be less concerned about what somebody else might think and totally enamored with what God thinks. You can make up your own list. Maybe some of those speak to you. We all have those things of self-centeredness in my life. What I'm trying to encourage us to do is to live lives of love and worship and sacrifice so much that it reflects the gospel to each other and to the world, to those around us. John Calvin says this, she was guided by the breath of the Spirit that ensure confidence she should do this in duty of Christ. 
being guided by the Spirit, having that confidence that what we're doing is in, in response to Him. When we worship and give and sacrifice, the fruit of what it says is so much bigger than us. There's a short story that was written in the 1950s by, a, by an author named Isaac Dennison. Isaac Dennison, uh, it was written in Denmark in the 50s. Isaac Dennison, by the way, is a pseudonym. Um, it's a different name for uh, an author named Karen Blixen. Karen Blixen was a, an author in the early 1900s. She wrote the book Out of Africa, which one of you, m- many of you may know, um, made into a famous movie. Anyway, she wrote some short stories, and one of the stories she wrote is this short story, and I'll summarize it for you, and I'm sure I'll get some of the facts wrong, but it was called Babette's Feast. And in the short story, this French woman from the late, it's set in the late 1800s in the Franco-Prussian War, and some French people had to flee a certain area of Europe, and they, this one woman went to Denmark without going into the whole story in depth. She, she goes to these two old women who are spinsters, never been married. Their father was the pastor and founding pastor of this church in, in this village. And the church by now is only made up of older people. And there's probably a dozen, less than a dozen people in the church. And Babette is given a note by one of their the two sisters, mutual friends. And all it says on the note is Babette can cook. And so she's fleeing. So the two sisters take her in. And she becomes a cook and a maid for them. And so as she, over the years, helps the sisters out, they give her a place to stay, and she ministers to the sisters. She goes to church with them. And, and if you can picture in your mind the way it's described, these people who go to church, they're sour, they're not joyful, they're not, they just go to church and they're getting old. They're just waiting for Jesus to come or to die, one of the two things to happen. And so their existence is not full of joy and worship and sacrifice. So Babette is with these two sisters for a number of years, and she becomes kind of part of the family, but not. They don't really know anything about her, but she lives with them. Unknown to Babette and to them, a friend of Babette's has, for the years that she's been living there, putting her name in a lottery. And Babette wins the lottery. Now, this is not a statement on let's vote for a lottery. Okay? This is just a story. Hang with me for a second. Uh, so she, she wins um, 10,000 francs, which is a fortune for Babette, who has no money and living with these sisters. They get the word that she's won this money, and these two sisters are very sad because they're now assuming, oh, Babette is going to leave. The war is over. She's going to go back. She's going to take the money. She's going to go to her life. Babette says to the two sisters, I, I, would, I would like to cook a dinner for you and the people of the church, a feast. And so Babette cooks this unbelievable, extravagant meal serving the best food and the finest wines. And the sour-faced dozen of this church, they are transformed by this feast. 
the two sisters at the end, they say to Babette, are you going to take the rest of the money that you didn't use for the feast and now go back to your life? And Babette says to them something remarkable. She says, before I came to you, I was a famous chef. And the meal that I made for you, it cost all of the money that I won. In other words, she took her entire 10,000 francs, invested it in a meal, and gave it to these people. And the, the point of the story is that these people were transformed by her sacrificial gift. They became joyful. They started reaching out into their community. They changed the atmosphere. Her gift of everything changed everything. The point I'm trying to make this morning is this. I'm not asking you to do more than you can. But Jesus is saying to us, just like the woman, she did what she could. She did what she could. My question is, have you ever asked God, what is my could? What is, for me, what does that look like? What are you asking of me? Am I even listening to hear what it is that you're calling me to do? When we come to a table like this, the table of the Lord, to celebrate the cup and the bread. I mean, think about it. We're celebrating Christ's death. We're saying He gave everything. His sacrificial death for us enables us to have a relationship with God and life everlasting. His broken body, the bread, body broken for us, it, it means that we who were many are now one in him. There's a unity here. There's a life here. And receiving him into ourselves, it permeates us to every cell in our body. When we take the cup, we're saying, this cup, it's, it, it enters into a new covenant with God. We've been forgiven of our sins. We have forgiveness and life. It is an example of sacrifice. We, in turn, should receive in a manner that's worthy. We should worship. We should live for him. Lord, I thank you this morning. I pray that, God, you would indeed bring us back to a heart of what worship is all about. I pray that now, as we come to the table of the Lord, that God we would receive from you all that you desire for us to receive. As we take of this bread and of this cup, I pray that, God, you would meet us here at the table of your presence. Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do. I believe this morning that chains will be broken off of people, that there will be freedom. I pray that people will come into a a true relationship with the God who made them. I believe healing is going to take place. I believe wisdom will be imparted by the Spirit. So God, meet us here and do what you desire in our lives as we receive of this table together. In Jesus' name, amen.